Today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, Remarkably Remote is here to help you in this brave new remote working world. You can add it to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And welcome to a very special episode of the Total Soccer Show. I'm your host, Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove is not with me today because he has never played for the U.S. men's national team. So who needs him? Because Tony Santa has, and Tony is with me on the line. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to come on the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, so it's uh, very exciting to get to speak to you. Obviously, the 2002 World Cup team uh, holds a special place in a lot of U.S. soccer fans' uh, collective hearts, and you play a very big uh, part of that. But obviously, you've done a little bit of, of stuff since that time period, uh, specifically with the Sana Foundation. I wanted to start there. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the work you all are doing and, and how it first came to be. Well, you know, it, it came to be when um, actually a volunteer just asked me if, I would help them get them get them some gear and that I had pull um, with the parts and stuff. So I asked her what she needed. She's like, I need about five hundred dollars for some balls, t-shirts, and I'm gonna run free soccer camp for people. And I'm like, that was easy. And she put my name on it. <laughs> um, and so, so I was like, you know what? Like at this point, I should be using my influence for more, and I can afford it. And and then Adidas contract at the time. So um, after the World Cup, I set up an official organization. And really used it as a pass through as a way to donate. Um, but then, then got into anti racism work and just helping, you know, um, kids of color acclimate um, and help regular soccer um, clubs, you know, teach people how to respond, report, and resist racist activity. Um, and then it was when I, I unretired, I was with the Galaxy, and then I, I decided to, that I wanted to do more afterwards and I started to develop programming and I found out that, you know, that was kind of like my niche. I was really good at, at developing, you know, culturally responsive programming that, that made a difference. So I moved back to Minnesota and started up shop. What exactly does uh, culturally responsive programming mean? I'm not familiar with that. Well, it, it means that we design, um, we design all of our programs with a, with an equity lens. So, you know, really understanding like how it's going to affect the people around us and, um, you know, and one example is, I mean, we can say that we want, you know, we say uh, uh, um, a diverse soccer team has kids from from nine different countries on it, right? Or nine ethnicities. Uh, inclusive one, they all go to the same barbecue afterwards, right? It's not, it's not, you know, eight strangers coming in and playing together and then leaving and, and not having any interaction. It's, it's, you know, you know, an example of a training video might be. You know, like a Latino family coming in and sitting, you know, a little bit farther away from the rest of the people and they don't speak English. And, you know, the American family saying, well, you know, they don't want to be a part of our team. Why, why they don't ever, you know, come over. But, you know, if they're the, the foreigner or or they speak another language. Are we being welcoming to them? Um, are we thinking about translating our medical forms? Do we know that their kids have insurance? You know, they're scholarship kids. They're taking six buses to get to practice. Do we care? Are we just saying, hey, why are they late all the time? So really looking at all the barriers um, to, to make an inclusive environment, to promote um, access and equity in the soccer, and then to make sure that it's a, they have the most enjoyable experience while they're there as well. 
other things um, that people could do specifically, do you think, to like to incorporate folks that like maybe don't speak the same language or have a different background? Because I found myself in that situation where like I, I am uh, a definitive uh, dumb American in that I only speak the one language. I speak like a tiny bit of high school Spanish. That's probably not going to get the job done. I'm wondering like what are some things you advise people to do in order to engage people from other communities a bit more actively? Well, I, you know, I just say, you know, try to learn about different, different people, different cultures and expose yourself. I mean, ignorance isn't always, you know, it's not always your fault that you've never, you know, met somebody from another country or, or, or read a book, but be open and understand, uh, you know, understand the difference. And, you know, a, a great example I have, and, um, you know, I, I took kids to Haiti and what's what some of our programming is, um, and, you know, we go on this waterfall trip and, and there's little kids that are guides and they come and they help you through there and you don't fall on rocks and they navigate you through these treacherous waterfalls the whole day. And then at the end of it, they come to you with their hand out and they say, hey, we want a tip. We helped you all day. You know, our American kids are like, you know, that those kids were so cool and they helped us, but they should have told us they were going to ask us for money. And I said, really? And they said, yeah, I mean, I mean, like, we didn't know we were going to have to pay them for that. And you can't just like come and take people's bags and then expect them to pay you. And I was like, Oh, okay. I get it. I said, well, do they help you? And they said, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have survived without them. And I said, okay. I said, and if they would have asked you to pay them beforehand, what have you said? Yeah, probably. I said, okay. I said, cause it was weird. Cause when the Haiti kids came to America last year and they left the restaurant, everyone looked like at them like they were cause they didn't tip, but there wasn't a sign saying that you had to tip your surf. Matter of mm-hmm. fact, they don't even speak English. Yeah. And the American, and, and so you know, we expect the world to understand the way we do things, no matter where we are. Um, and it's just understanding that people do stuff a different way. So I would say just, you know, take time and getting to know somebody from a different culture. And, you know, understanding is, is, is I guess, the start, right? You know, and it's hard to hate somebody that you know. <laughs> Right? That's um, very valid and a very, very good answer. Dude, thank you. That's uh, that's that's pretty good advice for going forward. But I wanted to ask you as well about the the barbecue idea, about like having the team barbecue. Do you have everybody together? You played for a lot of different club teams and a lot of different uh, areas and time periods. What team was there? One specific team that you felt like had that sort of atmosphere, that sort of uh, convivial, everybody hanging out, everybody getting along, the families bonding. Uh, was there one team that kind of did that more than others in your mind? You mean as a professional or yeah. as a youth team? As a professional. You know, I, I, I felt like, you know, when, I, you know, I was lucky. Um, I, I feel like that's sort of always been one of my roles in, in getting people to be socially inclusive on, on all the teams. Um, you know, and I was always, you know, um, I considered myself a world-class role player. Um, so I was always, um, you know, close to the superstar but you know, I, I I did the hard work with the guys in the tr- trenches, and um, it was it was able to bring them together. So uh, most of the teams that I've ever been on have, have been that way, um, you know. And you know, some of the the great leaders, you know, when I was in DC United, you know, I think that team had, you know, we had, you know, we would actually play games, you know, by ethnicity. I mean, we had a black team and a white team and a, a Latino team, and and it was it was all in fun. Um, but we would all go out together and we would, we would do stuff together and they would host, you know, the different cultures they would host and expose us to different foods and different languages. And then, you know, when I was in Chicago, you know, when Chris Armas was the captain there and he's such a great leader that just to make everybody feel um, just as important as well, whether or not you were basically a, a, 
you know, making $12,000 or making a million dollars that, you know, treating people with respect and, and really including them. Um, so those were two teams where I thought that the, the leaders on the team really came together and, and made sure that, that we learned and accepted whoever we were. And, and people were proud, you know, like, you know, like in Chicago, like Andy Heron was a Costa Rican and was happy to come out and show us food from this country and this culture. And, um, you know, and then we had, you know, Polish players and Latino players and Honduras players and everyone shared and there was no judgment because we knew at the end of the day, we were the same team and we we're going to win or lose together. W- was was doing a shot of Malort a requirement to play for Chicago or is that not a thing that you uh, <laughs> indulged? That was not, that was not um, a thing that, that I indulged. That's what, um, all right. That's the way to be. That's the smart, that's the wiser way yeah. to be, I think. Uh, no no yeah. one needs Malord in their life. Were there people that were, I think uh, Paul Tenorio and Sam Stachkel had an article for The Athletic about kind of the history of MLS. They talked a lot about uh, going out with Quatebec Blanco and what his teammates had to say about that. Was there one person that was more interesting to go out with, hang out with, uh, than other people when it comes to MLS? Well, you know, I would say that, you know, when I was, when I was first started, you know, you could say, you know, Marco was the leader of our team and, and, um, and, you know, going out in DC, you know, which was a cosmopolitan, you know, basically mm-hmm. African-American city, you know, until five, you know, um, you know, except during the day. Um, and then Marco would take you out at night and these restaurants in the basements of these restaurants ended up being Bolivian nightclubs. Um, and you saw a whole different demographic of people. And, you walk, you walk in with him and he's like, you know, somebody just comes up and brings you a bottle of something. And, and he's kind of like, God, so that was interesting because, you know, I was, I was, you know, it was a growth stage for me personally. I was in another city. Um, but to see a city that that was that cosmopolitan and then really understanding that there was huge, a huge population of, of El Salvadorians and Bolivians in there and, and, you know, to see them um, celebrate. So, you know, that was that was an interesting time. I was watching the the Maradona documentary on HBO, and they were talking about how, not surprisingly, he was he was very good on the dance floor. Marco Echeverri, given how good he was on the field, I'm assuming he also was solid on the dance floor. He was solid on the dance floor. He wasn't afraid to get down. <laughs> there we go. All right, well, uh, we want to get down to talking about uh, some of your national team experiences. Uh, we did this with Alexi Lalas last week. He told us all about some uh, some strange competitions, wearing racquetball shoes uh, to play on AstroTurf, all that type of thing. So, Tony, I wanted to hear some about your most memorable moments for the national team. Uh, wh- what would be uh, number one, either chronologically or just in the order of you talking about it? Chronologically, well, a, a memorable moment, um, you know, a couple of memorable moments is just, you know, the national anthem against Portugal is to start the 2002 World Cup. You know, we, you know, we, we got there and like the whole, you know, six months before you're just thinking to yourself, don't get hurt, don't get injured. You know, you've been waiting for your whole life for this. And at that moment, when you're on the field and you, you've made the starting 11 and they're singing the national anthem and you see your family in the stands. And you realize that everybody that's ever supported you, this is your one chance to say to them, you know, thank you for supporting me. And they were sitting next to somebody else and pointed you out and said, remember that kid that I told you about that I was helping or that I know, um, I told you, there he is, you know, he's in front of the world. So that was probably, you know, the best moment of my life. And I feel like I shared it with everybody that helped me along the way. 
Wow. So, so how much, like, at the time, how much response did you get to that? Like, w- were you hearing from people who you grew up with who didn't realize that suddenly, hey, here's this kid I grew up with who's on the national team? Like, how much of a response did you get locally? And just like, well, I'm assuming your, your mailbox was literally overflowing. Yeah, you have to understand that it wasn't like it wasn't this day and age with mm-hmm. social media and everything. So there wasn't that level of connection. It was harder to, to reach people. I mean, the, you know, cell phones were not that old. Um, so people really didn't have your contact information, but you'd hear from word of mouth and, you know, um, from a guy, from a guy. And it was more so after the fact too, is like, you knew it, like you'd see somebody like a year later and they say, Oh yeah, I was up at three in the morning watching with the bar and, you know, you may be so happy and proud and, you know, you did this or, um, and so it was, it was more just through time that you, you found out that everybody still was there. And and they were proud of you, and and so that was special. But we didn't have that that kind of level of um, of of social media back then. And I remember around that time I was the cover of um, of Delta, um, the airline magazine, and um, so I was in like every plane around the world. And, and I did get some 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 letters um, from like some people that said, "Oh, I didn't know what happened to you the last twenty years, but I found out flying." <laughs> So no no social media, but yes, in-flight magazines. It's also cool to yeah. hear that you're, like the experience that you remember most from that game was the National Anthem, uh, because that's a pretty resounding win, that 3-2 win, in which you play a pr- fairly prominent part. What was, like, what was the moment in which you realized, like, oh, we might win this? Was it just when the final whistle went? Was it halftime? Was it when the first goal goes in? When did you start to feel like it was a possibility? You know, I think we, we walked into that game believing that we were going to win. You know, I don't think that, that we were, at least from my point of view, you know, we had some great buildups. And another amazing event for me was, you know, we, we played and we lost to Italy um, in February that year. Um, but for, you know, for the most part in the, in the first half, we outplayed them. And it was kind of like a, a turning point for us where we decided that we were going to, you know, go toe to toe with whoever we, we played with. And we didn't play scared. We didn't back down. And, you know, we brought the game to them. Um, and we, you know, to the fact that we were playing in Italy with the crowd chanting USA. Um, and so it, I think, you know, we went on, onto the field knowing that they were going to have to beat us and we weren't going to make, let that happen. Um, to be honest with you, I had more doubts at the end of the game saying, holy shit, we're going to blow this lead um, than, than I did stepping on the field. Uh, once I stepped on the field, I, you know, I felt, you know, there was a goal, a ball, and we were all humans, and, like, they were going to have to beat us, and, and we were not going to let that happen. I I mean, obviously, it was more stressful for you in the moment, but I, I kind of forget that, that, like, watching that game, you go up 3-0, then it's 3-2. I forgot how much anxiety there was and how much, like, my stomach hurt until the final whistle went of feeling like, oh, this 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 could go south, but obviously it did not, so thank you all for not letting that happen. Uh, but I also wanted to talk for a moment about that team, specifically about, about Bruce Arena, because from what I understand, your first cap comes under Steve Sampson. Uh, you don't end up going to the 98 World Cup, which is maybe for the best given the way that world cup went but then you go in 2002 was there a noticeable difference in the in the u.s national teams between samson and arena what did sort of bruce arena bring into the locker room to that team either from like a tactical standpoint or from a group chemistry standpoint uh what did he bring to that squad that made them so successful 
Well, you know, like going back, you know, looking back, you know, I would say, you know, the 2002, if I had to gauge it, were, was probably like our strongest in, the, in a while. Um, but I also think our 98 team was, was, was pretty strong. Um, we just maybe didn't come together the way we should have. Um, and I always say, you know, I give Clinton a lot of credit because he was, Klinsman's teams were, let's just say, they were more sophisticated soccer players than we were in the fact that, you know, Germany got on the field, it didn't matter what happened, they were just cared about winning. And Klinsman's team, I don't think that they were as good as us, and if you stack their teams up, you know, maybe three of their players started on our team, yet they were able to get results. Mm-hmm. I think Bruce was very good at keeping a competitive um, competitive arena. Um, everybody knew their roles. Even people that weren't quite happy um, were there. And he was very good at putting a team together that made sense. Um, you know, and, and we had a backup at every position. Um, and you saw we shuffled a couple different lineups in there. You know, and Jeff Agnes went out, and Berhalter came in, um, David Regis ended up kind of getting benched late, and Frankie Haddock stepped in at a different position, and, um, you know, Landon started up front, and Clint Mathis, and Josh Wolf, and so, you know, and Kobe, Ernie, so injuries. So we were we were a very deep team, um, and he was very good at making everybody feel like they were just as important and to be ready. Um, and matter of fact, as you really went into every practice, even if you hadn't started eight games, like that you had a chance to win a spot. Um, so that, you know, you would have to give your all and, and, and maybe you were going to get called on. Much more from my conversation with Mr. Tony Sani still to come. Uh, but first, I wanted to let you know that today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you in part by Roman. Uh, if you were to guess on average how many days people in the United States have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? I'm going to guess that guess has changed lately. Uh, but in a normal United States, uh, that would be around 29 days seeing a doctor in major U.S. cities. That's basically a month. And if you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment as quickly as possible and as discreetly as possible. That That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. All you need to do is uh, grab your phone, your computer, your tablet, what have you, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you. Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping, so you don't even have to leave the home, which is always ideal. Uh, So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Uh, Thank you very much to Roman for sponsoring today show now back to tony so you're obviously caught on in the portugal game uh so too you're called on uh, against korea a one-to-one draw there uh my memory from that game was just how intense that atmosphere sounded uh on tv uh in person how loud was that how intimidating of an atmosphere was it to play uh south korea <laughs> in south korea so it was you know the the interesting thing is i might be a little different I didn't find it. You know, I always like to play away games. I always, you know, I, I didn't necessarily get nervous. I felt like, you know, the bigger the game, the better I was going to play because it was my chance to kind of show the world who I really was. It was harder for me to, you know, concentrate playing in front of 3,000 people in the middle of nowhere because it did not win. So to me, it was an incredible atmosphere, right? Um, and I, you know, as and as good as Korea was in that World Cup, you know, I wasn't nervous at all. And I actually thought we were much better the team. And I was actually disappointed that we, we tied that game because I thought and still think to this day that we were, we were and we are, you know, a, 
a better team. Um, you know, I think we we scored too early, and I think you know, I think that it's like having a two zero lead, you know, and, and, and so we won the first game and we we're riding high and we scored too early. And I think that really, we didn't have necessarily the killer instinct and we let them in it. And, um, you know, I think, you know, we could have done better on their goal. Um, and we missed a lot of early chances and then I think it, it kind of bit us in the ass, but, but we held on. Um, but it was an amazing atmosphere. Um, and I love, I love playing, you know, to a full crowd. <clears throat> and that's one of the things about the world cup, and the Olympics, like it's not, it's not like going to play in in Costa Rica or or Istanbul, where where like you're afraid you're not going to survive, you know, walking out of the stadium. Um, there's a there's an appreciation for your differences. There's like a celebration for quality. Mm-hmm. Like you go in there as like gladiators with respect, and everybody actually wants you to be your best and to beat you at your best. So it's not it's not really hostile. It's more celebratory. Um, and it's once every four years. So it was just incredible. And it, it, it was, it was a loud atmosphere, but it was like, you couldn't, you couldn't like look around and say, wow, these guys love their country. They're supporting it. Um, it was in, and for me, I always tried to psychologically say, you know what, like I'm playing against them mm-hmm. or they're cheering for me and try, how do I use that energy to get me going? So how how did you? Was it just sort of like everybody is rooting for this team? I want to be the one to beat them, or like, or did you just like pretend they were cheering for you? Like, how how do you sort of go I mean, about I, making yourself believe that? I mean, I think you know, for me, it's like it doesn't really matter if you you know if you play in a crowded gym, it's showmanship, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, you make it about like silencing that crowd, and you make it about getting the oohs and the ahs, and how do you win them over, right? And and so for me, that's what, you know, I use that noise as energy. Um, and, and so I, I don't use it as intimidation. And quite honestly, they weren't really an intimidating fanfare. They were, it was, it's, it's a festive environment. Um, you know, there are places where you go where they're throwing batteries at you and bags of piss. Um, the Korea is not like that. Yeah, I, I would imagine not. I don't think you hear many stories about that. Do you feel like the U.S.? Like, is there an argument to be made, maybe not in CONCACAF countries, but, like, that the United States sort of does tend to, like, earn a lot of respect, earn a lot of sympathy? Like, you look at that 2002 team, and I feel like how hard you all worked, how far you all got, uh, it seems like it tends to sort of create a level of respect from from, uh, fan bases. Similar to the 2010 World Cup, it felt like people sort of respected the hard work of the United States, like, the effort that's put in. Is that a thing that you think helps the United States get some resonance, get some fandom around the world? Uh, well, you know, I think it's different. There's, it's different d- during different times in history. Mm. You know, I think around 2002 was after 9/11. You know, people were were kind of um, happy to see us bounce back as a mm-hmm. country because there was, you know, there was sympathy towards what had happened. Um, you know, I do think we've been more of a hardworking, athletic team over over time, and so people people do appreciate the fact that we don't give up. Um, and I think that's trying um, with the times right now um, that we're we're not giving up and and we'll keep coming back and eventually you know you can you can not like us but you learn to respect and appreciate us um, because we we do come back and you know we're looking at this pandemic now it's a it's a perfect example for us to 
to stay the course and support each other. And, you know, in a year from now, you know, we'll be talking about this horrible time that we got through together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are getting through it by watching... Uh, old games, staying at home, being the number one most important thing. But then watching old games, like like uh, we broke down the uh, the Mexico game from the quarterfinal. Uh, that was that was definitely fun to watch and definitely fun to rewatch, knowing the result. Uh, but before that happened, uh, you had the game against Poland, which did not go particularly well. I've always wondered, like, what happened there? Was it just sort of you all feeling like you were already through? Was it just Poland were really up for it? And it was just one of those days when you all couldn't get it going. What happened in that third uh, group stage game? Well, I think so. Like I remember, you know, you know, like Poland's best player was my club teammate in at at Nuremberg, and and I remember talking to him before the game, and he was like, you know, the World Cup's a disaster for our country, and we, you know, we we embarrassed ourselves. Everybody's mad, and and I'm like, you know, well, we're we're fine, we're doing fine, <laughs> you know, but you know, but you know, we dropped the point, but so we have to tie or win this game, right? It's not like guaranteed, and he's like, yeah, it's not an issue. He's like, you know what, like our coach is benching all of our players and all the subs are, are playing, you know. And so that kind of scared me, right, because here are people that have watched their team get decimated, and this is their chance to show the world that they should have been playing the whole time. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and they have nothing to lose. And, and, and only to, you know, if they, if they lose the game to a team that's won all their games, it's business as usual, and if they play great and win – and they're a good team. I mean, they came in there. They were supposed to, you know, we were supposed to, on paper, be third in the group or fourth. So, you know, it was just a nightmare start and then and then pressure. Um, and then, you know, we didn't play poorly. Um, we had a million chances. We just couldn't put the ball in the goal. And it's when you're down, um, it just – it was one of those days where things working against us, but you know, up in the heavens, they were working for us. So <laughs> on the other side of the island, it, it all worked out. So, yeah, so it, it all works out. Uh, it was it South Korea with a late equalizer that sent you all through um, in the locker room after that game? Uh, as you said, like you guys weren't outplayed. Some things didn't go your way. Some shots didn't go in the back of the net. But how did you all manage to elevate your performance from that game to the Mexico game? Were there were there key figures in the locker room? Was it you? Were there key people in there who were sort of like, hey, we got to step it up. We got to get it going. We got to get back to it. Or was it just sort of a collective spirit of we've got Mexico up next. We're definitely not going to lose to them. Well, first of all, I think Bruce comes in and he sets the tone and he says, listen, guys, like you guys have been playing great this World Cup, but don't get it twisted. Like, like, you know, you the bed in the last two games, right? We're up one zero against Korea and then we lose this game and we're lucky somebody else saves our ass and we back into this, you know, but as lucky as it is, we put ourselves in a position to get there. We also put ourselves at danger not to get there. So, you know, it's time to come, you know, put up or shut up at the same time. You know, we had, I think, turned the corner around Mexico at that time where where after the first Dos Acero game, um, we believed already then that that we were, you know, the kings of CONCACAF. You know, we believed that we, we were better than them. So for us, it was actually the perfect opponent um, to basically, you know, it was a neutral environment. So it wasn't in USA or Mexico. It was a neutral environment on the world stage where we could settle this once and for all. And it was an opponent that we knew. We knew they were good. Um, but, you know, if you look at all the draws, you know, I would, you know, I probably would have picked Mexico versus a lot of other teams at that time, um, knowing what I know. And so it was easy for us to get 
to get up for it. And there was already the rivalry and everything. So it wasn't, it wasn't hard for us to get motivated and, and reset and, and go to war. And in terms of like uh, USA Mexico games, was that the most intense one you experienced? Because I'm assuming that it starts off intense, then Mexico go down. I'm going to guess they did not take that very well, and especially Rafa Marquez in the end, we know does not take it very well. How intense was that? Like how up for it were Mexico, and how quickly did they sort of resort to infighting? All right. So like, a couple things about the game. For me personally, like I always say to me, like that, that's maybe the best game that I ever played in my life, like that I'm most happy about. Maybe it wasn't, I didn't get noticed the most, but just doing my job, you know, locking down Blanco, being at the right place at the right time, you know, helping set up different goals, um, create other chances that we didn't score on. So it was just a matter of being locked in. I think at that point, our team had just come together and said, you know, we are a team. So many different lineups had, had played at that point in the World Cup. I mean, I, I, I want to say, you know, 18 plus players had, had played. Um, had gotten on the field. So we were really, you know, together. And, you know, it was just a matter of, like, we're going to wear you down. And I don't think any minute, like, physically, mentally, tactically, that that we were going to let it happen. Because every time someone on our team got beat, someone else was there. Um, and then you could see, you know, they went from, they went from, you know, on their side, from arrogance to, you know, being afraid to being angry, mm-hmm. um, to, rete- to to basically losing their So with locking down Blanco, was that a thing that you were asked to do? Was that your specific assignment? And also, how did you go about locking down Quatrack Blanco, who is notoriously not easy to mark and locked down? Well, I mean, it was a matter of, you know, first of all, we, so we, we, we switched the lineup. I think we, we played a little, a little different, um, lineup that day. And, um, so for me, it was just, you know, it, it it's a good matchup for me because because physically it wasn't a physical challenge for me, and and so you know I could get behind a little bit and make it up. It was more of a mental thing to make sure that wherever he was, don't give him room, right? And I think that's our whole thing is like we went in there pressing people, and if you press a team and they can go through you, you're screwed. But a lot of people can't actually beat a strong press and physically we were so strong and engaged with each other and help side defense that we didn't give them time, um, time to play. And so without time and keeping the ball away from him and making sure that he noticed that when you were around, um, was helpful. And, you know, my saving grace was like the last five minutes of the game after the, you know, I knew that he was pissed and I just, I went up to him and I was like, okay, I want to get out of here without getting hurt. So I said, Hey, I said afterwards, you know, can we can we can we trade jerseys? He looked at me and like he was like angry and he he wanted to be angry and then he was just <laughs> like shook his head and said, "Sure, buddy." Um, and then I knew, like you know, it was a sign of respect. So the last five minutes, I knew I wasn't going to get kicked in the game. <laughs> that is that is some games, yeah. some crafty gamesmanship. Because I think like a lot of people have been in those moments of like, if I go back into this game, I'm going to get kicked. It's going to hurt. I don't want to deal with that. That that's that's wise work from you. Uh, so I, I like that aspect of it. I also love your run late in the game which I forget what minute it is but it's like you just go down the sideline you get past some players and that to me feels like one of those kind of backbreaker moments of just like not only are the American center backs like good to go and technically proficient at dribbling but they have the fitness to just run the length of the field and not look too tired uh, at the end of it were you like exhausted at the end of that match or could you have played another 90 minutes because it seems like you could have played another 90. 
we could never play in 90 minutes, but you know, the Portugal game was, was probably the hardest because of the humidity, New Mexico game. You know, we, I wasn't probably as tired. I was looked back at that moment and said, you know, should have I just taken that ball to go myself, um, or, or, or pass it across, mm-hmm. which I did, you know, you know, quite early, but, um, you know, like that game, I felt like I was physically prepared, you know, mentally locked in. And, you know, at the end of the game, you know, making those runs, you know, that, that does crush somebody because they look at you and they're like, well, how are they still going? Mm-hmm. Right. And then you look at your opponent in the eye and you just smile and, you know, they know that, you know, you got a tank full of gas and, and your tires are ready. And, you know, they, they're trying to get through with a flat tire and they're already behind you. And then they get uh, the red card, obviously, to Rafa Marquez. Did you all have a sense that that was coming? Is that a thing that you kind of knew that if we get them frustrated, Rafa will probably go off? Or was it sort of a surprise when he comes through and uh, basically assaults Kobe Jones? I mean, that was a surprise. You know, I think we all do not smart stuff, you know, in our career. Um, And sometimes, you know, I things get out of hand. So it's an unfortunate incident. You know, he had a great career, but maybe a number of those plays. Um, I was surprised. I mean, to, to that level, I mean, there's a lot of cheap shots and I know that there was frustration, but you know, when you're, you still have a chance to win and it's a world cup. And so I was surprised it was, it was that blatant. More on the way from my conversation with Tony. But first, I wanted to say that this episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you in part by the Black Tux. You've heard us talk about the Black Tux before. You may even have heard us issue a the Black Tux Challenge uh, for the English game. We want to see everyone dressed up in their finest formal wear, uh, dining alone by candlelight. Uh, if you, like me, do not have said formal wear, then that's where the Black Tux comes in and has you covered. They have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Uh, you pick a style at theblacktux.com, request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. Uh, But before you even order, you can go uh, look at the offerings they do have, the selection of tuxedos and suits. You can click on a couple different ones. When you do, you get all the different pictures. So they give you a rough idea of how it will look, how it will fit, where the lines are, uh, if it has lapels, if it's double-breasted or not. Still don't know what that means. Uh, But you have all those different offerings. Then once you make the selection, then they will send it to you. You have the 48-hour try-on period where you can test it out, do some dance moves uh, in your home, flail around, make it look natural, and then you can decide if it fits exactly how you want. If it doesn't, you can get the uh, the adjustments that you need so that when your event does happen, you do have it fitting exactly how it needs to. And if it already fits, then it already fits and you know exactly what you need. It'll arrive in time so you've got it ready for your big event uh, or for your dining alone by candlelight experience, whichever you so choose. And if you do choose to use the Black Tux, uh, you should remember that you can get 10% off. Go to theblacktux.com and use code SOCCER to get 10% off. One more time, that's blacktux.com, code SOCCER, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Uh, Thank you very, very much to the Black Tux for sponsoring this episode of the Total Soccer Show. Now back one last time to Tony. So then we go to the uh, the quarterfinal against Germany, a one nil loss, uh, very very a very painful loss. I'm going to get slightly more so for you than for me. The main question here I have for you is: Have you forgiven Torsten Frings, and do you think U.S. fans should ever forgive Torsten Frings? You know, he, he played to win the game, so it wasn't his fault, right? That's you know, right. I'm like the ref, the ref could have called the penalty kick, so. 
you know, like, you know, I mean, he, he sold it really well. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of your job. So I'm not going to hold it against him for, for, for doing, making a tactical play that the ref didn't call. Um, you know, I, you know, if anyone, you know, you, you know, you blame the ref that being said, you know, they had some chances early that, that they didn't capitalize on. And then we had some chances that we didn't capitalize on, um, and, and to put ourselves in that position. So, you know, that's what I, I would say about, you know, the German team is they knew how to win regardless, you know, I, you know, I, I love that game because it, it was kind of, even though we lost, it was a coming out for us on the global stage and for a lot of our players that made us feel like we deserve, you know, to be international. Like we could go and play for any club in any country. Um, you know, we're, we're, you know, you know, two heavyweight champions just slugging it out. Um, and, you know, when you look at, you know, the, the dollar value of, of, of their lineup versus ours, um, you're like, you're like, wow. Um, and it was entertaining. And I think, you know, that, that's the other thing about, you know, we, we came to a point where we could come in, face up with you, you know, lock in heavyweight battle, and we were going to play soccer. We weren't going to be scared. We weren't going to kick and run. We weren't going to just boot it. We were going to play out of the back. We were going to keep the ball. Um, and we were going to try to, you know, play soccer and physically break you down. And so it wasn't like we're going to, you know, be some robots and just kick it and run at you and hurt you. We were soccer players and world-class soccer players and a world-class soccer team. And that's what, you know, makes make you proud about about that game and the support that we came in it, it became easier to become an american fan because it wasn't like well but you know it was like yeah we're good and we're here to stay how did you uh how did you describe yourself earlier was it a world-class role player yeah that's how i describe myself yeah is that is that how you would describe yourself within the context of this team or this game against germany were you sort of were you like like a, a role player who did your job were you one of the people in the locker room who was uh like geeing people up at halftime or were you a bit more chill uh when it came to locker room talks and things like that you know i mean you know i i think you know people that know me i'm i'm pretty mild mellowed you know mannered you know i think you know, there's certain people where it was my job to encourage and talk to, and I always stay connected, you know, to the people that I work with directly, you know, the people in front of me, behind me, next to me, um, a good relationship with the keeper and, and that. And, and I think there's times when you, you know, you bring everybody energy. And then I also think that there's, there's times where people see your behavior and look at you in the eye and, and, and are watching what you're doing and, and follow with that way. So, you know, I think, I think what people can really take from you is confidence, right? And and understanding that 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 you walk out there expecting to win, and and they believe that you believe in, it and it it becomes contagious. And also understanding that when you make a mistake, you know someone's going to be there, so you don't have to worry. Like, oh, what if I make a mistake? You don't have to worry because somebody's always behind you. Um, and if they beat all 11 of us, they beat all 11 of us. But that's really what it's going to take. So after 2002 World Cup, uh, basically there's a three-year period in which I, I believe there's some injuries involved. There's some other players coming in, but we don't see much of you. Then you're back in the 2005 uh, Gold Cup, which goes quite well for the team. Uh, but what, what what sort of happened after 2002? Like why I, I tweeted this, I think, last week that I feel like you are one of the most like underappreciated players in the national team like ever uh, for the U.S. national team, but certainly in that 2002 squad as well. Like Why, why did sort of things uh, turn off after the 2002 
World Cup? Well, you know, if I, you know, like when I look back at it, I said, no one can take away what happened. And I look at my players and that I played with. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, people know and they can't take it away from me. But I, I would say, you know, yesterday I was in an interview. I said, you know, we, we've commercialized the game and, and the press has decided who our stars are and, and, you know, why aren't we better? Well, you know, I think if the press puts enough um, attention on it and, you know, I don't want to name names, but I've seen players come up and play just because, you know, all of a sudden the press are supposed to be good and without really, you know, putting winners on the field and understanding like what a good soccer player is. Um, so I think after the 2002 World Cup, you know, my I was supposed to go to Arsenal, and then I was supposed to go um, um, <clears throat> somewhere else in England, and my transfer broke down because I had a back injury. Um, so I didn't play for um, for about 14, 15 months um, for, in the year 2003. Um, so I and then when I did come back from that back injury, uh, my team had got relegated. So I came back, played the last eight games, we won them all. Um, we went up and at that time I was just like, it's time for me to come home. Um, you know, I, I came back and, and matter of fact is my club team was trying to, because I've gone so long, they didn't want to pay me. So they tried to force me into retirement. And, you know, I said that I'm better. Um, and so my first game after being injured 15 months was with United States national team. Um, and I came to camp and, you know, after not playing for 15 months and, you know, after 45 minutes, Bruce was like, yeah, you look fine to me. You'll, you'll start this week. Um, I think it was a game against Haiti and Miami. So, um, so then I, I got back and, and then I, I transferred back to the, to the States, um, and, um, had a run in, in Columbus and, um, and then I went in Chicago and, and, you know, I did have some back injuries my first year in Chicago. So trying to get through that. And I really felt like I was coming back. Um, and I actually really wished that I would have an opportunity to the 2006 world cup because the, I think that 2006 year I was, by the time I got back, um, I was playing really well and we had a great run in Chicago the second half of the year. And I think we had the best record in the league, but I think it was just the, the culmination and, you know, for the most part, you know, people always will say, you know, you're Bruce's boy and you play no matter what. And I agree, but, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, if you look at the history of the games I've played, um, you know, where, you know, when I looked and who I wanted next to me, like me and Chris Armas, I think, played the most qualifying games in minutes and stuff like that. And, you know, me and O'Brien in the World Cup played every minute, you know, so it's, you know, who's going to be there to win. And so when I look back and people that took chances on me, what I would say is that, um, um, you know, although people, people did, did take chances on me, you know, I, I would say that, that they, that I delivered for them. Um, and so I never really worried about being a, a crowd favorite. Um, and I think, I think that's where, you know, when, when, when it all gets said and done and you look at hall of fames and, and, and popularity and appreciated or unappreciated and, um, you get judged on all those things and that's just the life of it. And, you know, I, I think I played 42 or 46 caps, but you know, there was a 10 year period where I did feel like I was in the top five or six players in the country. And, um, my, my club, you know, people say, you know, what, you know, one of those memorable moments of your career. Um, I always say we played Russia and lost one zero and, um, we were supposed to go with, with 18 players, but back then it was hard to get work permits. Um, I mean, travel permits to go to Russia. So we ended up traveling with 14 players 
And I had played, um, yeah. And so, cause you, you, we had to apply like six months ahead of time for visas and you weren't able to change. So by the time we get to the game, you know, we only have 14 players. And I think one of them is Brian West, who's never had a national team camp. Um, and there's different people that are injured or they're out or they're not eligible. Um, so we go and we play and I actually end up playing, um, and this is in, in like 2001 and I think, or, or, or 2000. And I ended up playing like, um, number, number 10 or we, we play, Brian plays target man. I play with drawn forward behind him and Claudio plays behind me in center midfield. Um, so we played, you know, and like I hadn't played back there in like two years, right. Um, up front again. And so the, I played five games in 17 days um, with my club team and we were fighting for that third spot. And the agreement was everybody was only going to play for 45 minutes. And, you know, we were a champions league team and fighting for that again. And so somebody gets hurt in the first half and I end up playing 90 minutes. And at the end of the game, I can barely walk. I can literally like barely walk in. I get in the locker room and my phone's ringing and, um, Uh-oh. it's, it's my coach. And he just starts swearing at you. You, you know, this and that. you know, much money's on the line and we had an agreement and you're an important part of the team. And you know, you started, you know, back and now this, and I just handed the phone to Bruce and these guys, then the whole locker room's watching these guys swear at each other for 10 minutes. And I think at that point though, what happened was, you know, again, you know, I think, you know, my first MLS game scoring for Bruce, you know, he, he was like, okay, this guy's, you know, has it for me. And I scored the game winning goal, my second MLS for him. Um, so he knew I was showed up in big games, but at this moment he knew that, you know, I was always going to put my country first. Um, and I was in a contract. You're about to sign a new contract with, with my team in Berlin and fighting for the champions league spot and tired. And it would have been easy for me just, you know, my coach, why didn't you just fake it? Why didn't you just say you had a cramp, which I did, right? And come out of the game. Um, and and I was like, because, you know, that's just not who I am, right? And whether or not I'm going to look tired or look slow, you know, that's not who I am. I'm I'm here to win. I'm here to, you know, and I think at that moment, too, the coach knew and understand and believed in me and, and you know, never, you know, I never saw the bench again for another game. But when I did get back to Berlin, I had a contract in front of me um, and it, it stated, and you know, the, the German contracts were a little different. You, you got like high win bonuses. So you, you get, you got a base salary, but you basically got $10,000 a point, um, um, in mine at the time. So every game you played, you got $30,000 if you won. Um, and if you sat on the bench, you would get half, but if you weren't suited up, you get zero. So he just showed me the contract. He goes, well, next year you guys have the hex and here's your national team schedule. So every game that you're gone, um, you'll watch, you'll come back and you'll watch from the stands. So he's like, you do the math. We get about 50 points a year and you'll be missing for half of them because I'm not going to bring a tired player back after playing here on Saturday, flying to America, getting there on Monday, flying to Mexico, flying back, arriving here Saturday, and then you know, wanting to play another game. And so, um, I, for, so basically for like a three, four year period, you know, I didn't play in a lot of national team games because my club coach said, um, I only want you going into real games. And so during that time period, like I skipped the Confederations cup, you know, I did play more qualifiers than any player and more world cup games, but I only played in, in real games and I didn't play in, in, in friendly. So no, no soft points or no padding the stats. And I think that's why, 
you know, there's a generation of people that maybe doesn't know who I was or, you know, I didn't have like 80 or 90 caps because, you know, the period I played and you couple that with injuries, um, there wasn't, you know, the, the body of work just wasn't as large as, as, you know, you look at the kids today and you have some, you would say borderline starting MLS players that, you know, already have 40 caps and, mm-hmm. and you kind of wonder, well, wow, how did that happen? Who are the players that you have like the most faith in right now, or you think like are the most deserving of spots? Not to say that some aren't, but who do you find yourself sort of watching and enjoying and thinking like, yeah, they're reflective of the kind of teams that I played for, the teams that I helped establish, the national team program that I helped build. Who do you uh, look to today? Relatively, um, you know, it's hard because the team is changing so mm-hmm. quickly. And I think I think that's one of the 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 challenges too is is consistency. Um, I think too is you have players playing overseas a lot, so you just don't really get a core as strong of a core. You know, with we've had different coaches, couple that with different coaches, and you know, obviously, <clears throat> Pulisic is is a phenom. At the same time, is like he's got to play right, like. You know, we, you know, we, you know, over the last 10 years, we look at who our American stars are, you know, are they players that are playing every day, you know, wherever they are, um, which is, which is important to, you know, to be at the top of our game, especially, and for the younger guys to develop, if we really want them to be, to be at the top of the game, they, they need to develop. Um, you know, I think, you know, McKinney is, is going to have a great career, um, as well, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, even, even a guy like Josie, he's very, you know, like he's very important to the team. Right. And I think, you know, if he has the attitude where if he starts and plays or he doesn't play, you know, you need guys that have been around it and, and have evolved and can give you something just a little different, but they need to get, you know, the group together where it's collectively a group, um, no matter who's, who's playing and, and who's not. Um, and that's going to take a little time and it's going to take a little consistency with, with the coaching staff. Um, and then, and getting, you know, the, the same, it's, it's really tough with, with the MLS, the way their schedule doesn't necessarily coordinate internationally. So we, we don't get all the same players. So it's almost like we have three national teams, right? We have one with European based players, one with American based players, and one is a mix yep. and you have all these camps and then you have these games and let's go, well, so who's who? Right, because some days this guy is king of the mountain, and some days this guy. But who's who? And so we fight for our our, our identity within ourselves, and that, and that makes it really challenging. So you didn't go to the '98 World Cup; it goes disastrously for that team. You go to 2002; you make the quarterfinals. You don't go to in '06; they don't get out of the group. Do you feel like Greg Berhalter needs to bring you if and when the United States qualifies for the 2022 World Cup? Are are you the sort of factor that they're missing? That's what I'm hearing, basically. <coughs> Pretty much, pretty much. Um, and I, and, you know, and I, you know, I like Greg, and I've talked to Greg, and I've talked to Ernie, and you know, at some point, you know, I, I, I may look to, to get more involved in, in soccer, you know, even at the, um, you know, at the MLS level or the national team level, um, and you know, just bringing in different perspective and to help, help some of the players, you know, um, get over the hump, and 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 really, it's all about, you know, when I when I look at things that, that I believe that that made me, you know, a good teammate was um, was you know helping change culture, and even when when Bruce brought me out of retirement to come in LA and 
you know, I was 39 years old and I, you know, I started probably the first night, seven or nine games before my body broke down. But it's really making sure that everyone shows up every day to give their best and understanding. And, that, and you know what? No matter what you do, it's about building a, a, an atmosphere where, where people are on the same team um, and you can have fun doing it. Like you can make teams an enjoyable place to be and really make people around you happy that you're in the building. It doesn't mean that you're going to go easy on them, right? I mean, there wasn't there wasn't a guy that I was afraid to kick ever. Um, or, you know, but at the same time, it's like we could go at it and then I could take you to lunch and vice versa. And so you learn to appreciate, you, you know, your teammates like family members. And um, a couple more questions. I appreciate you being so generous with your time. With uh, the idea of like culture and, and uh, working maybe more with U.S. soccer, are there things you would like to see U.S. soccer do differently? We're in a situation where we have the new CEO coming in. We have a new uh, president with Carlos Cordero stepping down. Uh, but I think you were you were involved in a tweet or like somebody included you in a tweet maybe last week or the week before about uh, the Athletes Council, the sort of lack of diversity there. Are there things that you think U.S. soccer could be doing better to have more outreach to kind of reach different groups that they don't currently reach? Yeah, I mean, there's tons. I don't want to sound like I'm the expert and I know everything. And, you know, I'm not like the soccer god. You know, I do have a body of work as a professional player. You know, I have played in the World Cup and performed. Mm -hmm. I've played internationally at different levels. And I'm a kid from Minnesota that's played indoor soccer, USL soccer. I came, you know, from a mixed background. I have parents that came from another country. So, you know, I, I do have a roadmap that's been successful for me. Um, and you know, I, I do have experience that, that I believe is, is relevant. Um, you know, I would say a couple of things, you know, when we look at the women's game, um, and the equal pay, um, that we're, we're talking about, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm personally, and I hope this isn't unpopular. I'm less concerned about the equal pay than the investment in the women's game. And I say, you know, and I say that, you know, historically the, the, the pay is different because we've, We've promoted, the whole world has, you know, promoted, put men in front of, of women in sports for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we're more popular. Of course, more people, you know, go to watch it. But if we put the same amount of dollars in front of our athletes now on our, the women's team and invest in women at the grassroots level, I mean, that's the real way to, you know, to, to balance it out. And I think if, if we spend our energy promoting you know, the superstars that we have on the women's team, one, they'll make more money through advertisements anyways, right? Because we, we will help promote them. And by doing that, it's going to promote the women's game and more girls and women are going to play. And, you know, the more people get educated about watching it, you know, people around the world don't like baseball because they don't, they don't understand it. Right. Yeah. The more of us watch women's soccer, the more we appreciate it. And we understand that, wow, like, you know, those are some kick-ass athletes. So there has to be a huge um, intentional investment in the promotion and access for for girls and young women to play in this country. So if if if, if it was up to me, I'm less worried about the pay than the investment to balance the scales. Um, and it's got to be a large intentional investment um, through marketing, through access, through grassroots promotion. Um, so we can, you know, set the bar, you know, on the world stage about what we're doing um, and why our women are the best in the world. Um, so that's that. Uh, at a grassroots level, I, you know, we we need to, you know, we we say we don't want pay as you play. Um, you know, 
some of our academy teams still charge people money. And so we went away from the system where we were going to say, hey, we want all the best players to go play here. And it's three to four times as expensive. And, you know, I think, again, the investment needs to be made through U.S. soccer or through Major League Soccer that all academy teams, you know, have it. And, you know, if you look at the Germans or something like MLS teams could be regional training bases where, where you have schools where, where kids get scholarship into their based on ability to go. So now we have 30 teams. So, you know, in, in a sense, you know, if you, you look at 30, 30 teams times 25 players, you know, the top 600 kids in every age group could be, you know, housed at an MLS you know, boarding school, playing and, and getting educated. And then, you know, teams go into that flow because it's very hard when you have your MLS teams competing locally against local teams, right? So now you're competing against your own fan base. Um, and then you're getting into the camp business, right? Competing against the same people that are trying to keep the sport alive and you're running them out of a business, right? So at some point we have to realize that at the top needs to worry about winning games and investing in the games. So those are, those are um, what things that I think need to be done. And then even the U S soccer foundation, um, you know, I, I believe that, you know, it's, it's very cookie cutter and this one's a little bit personal to me, I guess. Um, you know, I'm an African-American man that grew up in St. Paul um, and, and it's very hard for me to get support. And recently we got like a, we're doing a, I'm building a $10 million um, soccer facility here. And we, I think we got a $25,000 grant from them. So we're super, super excited about that um, to help put in the lighting for it. Um, but for an African-American, you know, role model that's in education that serves over 15,000 kids a year at the grassroots level and immigrants, it's hard to fathom that I can't, or they don't want to partner with me programmatically at a grassroots level. Um, so, you know, where, you know, the U S soccer foundation should be investing to grow the game. And, you know, I think after the next world cup where that money goes, we'll see, but I, you know, there's a lot of us and not just me that are people in the, in the game that invested their whole life to the game. And, you know, I think being able to partner with them um, is important. And I know, you know, as soccer people, we always say, you know, we want to see at the table, we want to see at the table. But then once we're in positions to decide who's at the table, we go bring in non-soccer people. And like, you know, it's, and it's the same as I look at it, you know, Americans, like mm -hmm. we have to at some point believe that we have the quality and we're going to invest in our, in our own players. Um, and you look at Germany and, you know, they, they made it difficult. They said, you know, in, in the third division professional, they actually made it harder for foreigners to play, to get work permits in their professional league because they wanted to provide opportunities for our youth. Now, I don't know if the stat's true, but I read somewhere we have the same amount of Americans playing in the MLS as we did, you know, 20 years ago or something when we only had like 12 teams. And so I don't know if that stat's true, but. I know that there's a lot more foreign players that are allowed to play versus how many more opportunities are for Americans. And you hear that, well, the quality is not there. If, you know, if America's the quality is there, if we invest in the right American players, and that means the middle level American player, right? So 
maybe you're not good enough to start on the team and your player 16 to 18 and you make 150,000, you're too expensive. I'd rather go take a chance on an 18 year old, right? Well, the 18 year old is not going to give you quality, but get a 20 year old, 28 mm-hmm. year old that's played, you know, in division two for eight years. He's a professional soccer player. He knows how to raise a family off the game. He's not going to win games for you, but he's not going to lose them. And that's what soccer players are. You know, there's only so many messies in the world. And so we have to kind of stop trying to, to, to figure out, you know, when we're going to find him, you know, we need world-class role players, players that can go and play at any level and fit in and not disrupt. You know, right now there's so many young players on the teams that there's a battle to like what, what kind of soccer is correct. And one thing about Bruce's teams is you'd have so many veterans and then you throw in a Ben Olsen, right? Or an Omar Gonzalez, right? So the younger players were not going to take over the locker room, right? And they were going to be put in a position to produce and grow and learn from consistent players. You know, you look at the DC team, you know, you had players like Chris Kelderman and Sean Medvin and John Maisner, you know, Jesse Marsh, you know, all these guys that were coming off the bench that were, solid everyday, you know, players, um, for young people to learn from. And then I've been on some other teams, whereas half the locker room is under 23. Now in practice, you know, there's so many of them that they think they're right. And so now you have this argument about what's tactically correct. And then we complain, well, we don't have enough quality to put them on the field. So start investing in the, in the American soccer player past the age of 24, when he actually does figure it out and not give up on him. I got to say, for you saying that you're not a locker room hype guy, I feel more motivated than I ever have to like enact change or try to have there be change at U.S. soccer. That was that was excellent. I did, and like I was sort of joking. I was joking when I said that you should go to the 2022 World Cup. I am not joking when I ask, have you considered like pursuing leadership positions with U.S. soccer? Because it does feel like now is the time where they're is sort of change. There is a movement within U.S. soccer fandom, I think, to see new faces, to see more people from U.S. soccer that have a relationship to U.S. soccer, that have a relationship to U.S. soccer fans. You seem like a person who is, who takes a lot of boxes, and a lot of what you're saying, I think, resonates with a lot of people. So I'm wondering if you've sort of looked at that or considered that at all. Well, you know, I'm like, I'm in this middle of this two-year fellowship that I got to work on my own leadership. So I am trying to develop myself as an individual. It's called the Bush Fellowship. Uh, it's, you know, I got it in Minnesota, so I, I am trying to invest in myself to become a better leader. I do have some, some projects here that, you know, that, that I'm building and, you know, I, I hire, you know, 60 people to work, you know, in the school system at a public park in Minnesota. And I'm trying to finish this $10 million project to build a soccer facility on the east side of St. Paul. And, you know, we're, so we're wrapping up in this next year and I, I am looking for new challenges. Um, I've always been outspoken. So people know that, um, I, I, you know, and it's, you know, it hasn't always gotten me to be on everybody's favorite list and, um, I'm not one to bite my tongue at the same time as I'm not necessarily one that's going to, you know, navigate the political, um, let's say circus that it may, that, that it may take to get a seat at the table. Um, and so I, I believe the right time, the right person will come and look at my body of work and whether they look at it as I was as a soccer player or as a youth development expert, or at some point, maybe they'll realize that to develop good soccer players, 
you need good youth development experts and call me in and have a seat at the table and, and ask my voice and, and I'll be ready. And I still do volunteer with the State Department and I, I travel internationally for them and we have a great relationship. So I do the sports envoy. Um, I keep in contact with, with, you know, some of my former players and seeing what they're doing and, you know, we trade ideas. And so I think when the time is right, um, I think, you know, my mom kind of gave me some advice that she did when I was younger. She's like, if you really want to do it, Tony, you got to let people know and you got to invest in it and go relearn and educate yourself and let people know you're a seat at the table and, and do it. Um, and it's not just going to come to you. So I do have to step up and take some responsibility and, and, you know, getting a seat at the table if, if that's what I want. And, and then I just hope that, you know, people look at my body of work as a, as a human being, um, and, and think that, you know, I'm a positive asset to the, to the growing soccer community and, and ask for my help. And, you know, I'll be glad to join. Well, I have many, many more questions for you about the national team, about your career, but I feel like I've taken up plenty of your time as is. That said, I do think people, especially in in the months to come, are going to need uh, optimism and, and reasons for kind of belief in soccer and belief in humanity. And it feels like you can provide that. So maybe we can have you uh, back on at some point in the next couple of months to talk more about the national team, talk more about your club career. But for now, Tony, thank you so much for taking time to talk about Chosen 2, to talk about your career, and to talk about uh, U.S. soccer and the state thereof, as well as soccer in Minnesota. That was all fascinating and wonderful and interesting and everything else I can say. Thank you. It's a, it a appreciate it and uh, hope everyone has a positive attitude right now and sticks together and, and sticks together supporting our men and women national teams as well um, as, we, as we move forward to this new era.